When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. He said something to the effect of, you know, Harvey's a really nice name, but, you know, the storm, not nice. Not nice. He was actually watching TV. He didn't even look up. He said, oh, I, I think empathy will be one of the strongest parts of Trump. He almost conveyed it as a commodity, as something to sort of show off when the time came. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show that takes a close look at Donald Trump and all of his adventures. My name is Jamel Bowie. I am Slate's chief political correspondent and your host for today's show. It is far too early to say if Hurricane Harvey is the disaster of the century, but it may well stand as the disaster of the year. Houston, Texas is underwater, flooded by unprecedented rains, and the extent of the damage and death is unknown. What we do know is that the federal government faces the major challenge of rebuilding and reconstruction, a task complicated by the people in charge. Despite photo ops and the occasional words of encouragement, there is a little sign that President Trump is engaged with the details of recovery and relief. Congress needs to pass an aid package for affected regions, and it also has to keep the government open so that key agencies like FEMA can do their jobs. This early period of response is critical. When it's mismanaged, as was true for Hurricane Katrina in 2005, it can exacerbate the damage of the storm itself, turning a natural disaster into an outright catastrophe. But even if authorities manage to stick the landing and provide adequate relief and guidance, we're still looking at a Houston forever changed by the flood and its consequences, and we can look to Katrina for a possible future. There, in New Orleans, a city that once had a large, vibrant black middle class and black political class, has changed dramatically, losing much of that earlier population and now becoming a place that, in many respects, is unrecognizable from what it was. We don't know Houston's future. But that doesn't mean we can't discuss the challenges and pitfalls it will face as it begins to rebuild. Our guest today is Gary Rivlin, author of the 2015 book Katrina, After the Flood. We'll talk to Gary in a moment, but first, a word from our sponsors. To talk about Hurricane Harvey, disasters, the whole nine yards, we have Gary Rivlin, author of Katrina, After the Flood. Hi, Gary. Welcome to Trumpcast. Great to be here. So in the intro to this episode, I spoke a little bit about Hurricane Harvey and drawing a bit of a connection to Katrina as the other kind of major hurricane that flooded an American city. And so my first question for you is, in in the public consciousness, Katrina is sort of synonymous with not just the hurricane and the disaster itself, but also the somewhat bungled aftermath. Observing Harvey, observing sort of the beginnings of the um, response to Harvey, do you see authorities making any of the same mistakes they made in New Orleans? No, I mean, the advantage that any administration, any FEMA director has after Katrina is Katrina changed the world. You know, if you just look at the polling numbers for George Bush president at the time, uh, that's the inflection point. It was 2005, summer of 2005, and his poll numbers fell 
nearly 20 percentage points and never recovered. I mean, they went up after that, but they never went back to where they were prior to Katrina. And I think the lesson for every administration is, wow, we really need to pay attention. One of the great shames of Katrina, I mean, there's many shames of Katrina, but it was a practice session, Hurricane Pam, a, a, a FEMA-led training a year before a year before the actual storm. And they anticipate almost exactly what Katrina was, a, a slow-moving Category 3 hitting New Orleans at the angle it did. And said we have to have this many truckloads of water and food, etc. And they had it all on paper. They just did not send the truckloads of food and water, etc. that they said. And I think the lesson for every administration after that is we better pay attention to this. Otherwise, this might be the end of our administration as well. So the, the, the one thing that does strike me is a huge difference. I mean, with a caveat, I was down in New Orleans for eight months living after Katrina. I'm just now sitting in New York City, reading the <laughs> newspaper, watching TV, listening to podcasts, uh, just like everyone else. But, you know, kind of the storyline I'm getting from Harvey is hardening. It's, you know, people working together, you know, rich, poor, black, white, doesn't make a Latino, doesn't make a difference. That was not New Orleans. One of the untold parts of Katrina, of New Orleans after Katrina, was it showed the ugly side. It wasn't like people came together in a storm. It was actually quite the opposite. Right. Those, for me, I was, this will tell you how young I am. I had just started college uh, when Hurricane Katrina hit. And the, the images that are most striking to me that I remember most are those of armed, heavily armed police sort of confrontations between black residents in New Orleans and and police, a kind of sense that New Orleans hadn't just devolved into, you know, not, I wouldn't say anarchy, but sort of conflict, but that that conflict was sort of heavily racialized and there were suspicions of people came to the fore. Well, a couple of things. One, you know, the media played a, a really bad role there because early on after Katrina, there were all these reports of, Violence and right riding in the Superdome, like I, the, the, police, the police chief too of New Orleans, you know, talked about babies being raped in the Superdome, and there was this impression watching that you know there was just anarchy if you were inside this this shelter, the twenty thousand, twenty five thousand people in there, and it turns out so much of that was just inflated. I, Four or five people died, one committed suicide, the other four, you know, heart attack, heat stroke, whatever. There was no murder, uh, no reported rapes. And, and, you know, so some of it was just kind of this overblown where, you know, suddenly people were scared. And so they bring in the guns, they bring in the, uh, you know, that attitude. But it was more than that. The, the, the Gretna Bridge, there's a bridge that connects the Central Business District, the downtown New Orleans, to um, the West Bank, the you know, largely white suburbs across the Mississippi River, the you know, huge bridge, um, Crescent City Connection officially, but everyone calls it the Gretna Bridge. And the state-run bridge, but on their own, the sheriff for the local parish county uh, on the other side of the bridge in the West Bank, in a town, the town of Gretna, they just decide on their own, we're going to shut down the bridge. There's too many black folks walking from flooded New Orleans into the suburbs, which were dry. I mean, they didn't have electricity, but it was dry. They uh, wasn't the same kind of catastrophe. And they just put police cars blocking the bridge, uh, officers with, with rifles shooting over people's head if they came close. And so you had flooded New Orleans for several days. People, the only way out from the downtown of New Orleans is over this bridge is to get to safety. And they weren't permitted. And I, you know, I just imagine a New York City, like, you know, Manhattan wants to get out, but Queens says no. 
Uh, it was really ugly. I mean, I, you know, one of these things we heart and we tell ourselves, you know, happened after September 11th. I think it's happening from what I could tell now in Houston is, you know, we all become Americans. We all join together. Uh, and that did not happen in, in New Orleans. And that continued for, you know, through the recovery. But that's a, a separate issue. So, Gary, in your view, what we're seeing in Houston then looks something like an effective response or at least not a terrible one? Right. I mean, it's, it's an awful circumstance. I mean, you know, all things considered, again, using Katrina as the baseline for like, well, okay, this is what a bad response <laughs> looks like. Yeah. Um, it's, it's been good. But, you know, I, I, once the rain stops, that's when the hard part stops, starts. That, that, that's when it's sort of like this existential pain, you know, can I, re- I mean, should I rebuild? Can I rebuild? Will, they, will anybody help me rebuild? You know, you think it's going to take a few months. No, it's probably going to take a couple of years. That's the experience in New Orleans. You know, for entire communities come back, you know, you're thinking in your head it's a year or two years. No, it's, it's probably closer to 10 years. Uh, New Orleans, you know, is more of a 10-year a uh, battle to come back. And, you know, there are some communities, largely black communities in New Orleans, that 11, 12 years, well, it's 12 years now after Katrina, uh, they're not back. The Lower Ninth Wars probably only about half back after Katrina. You know, the 10-year anniversary of, of uh, Katrina, uh, there were 100,000 fewer African-Americans living in New Orleans than there were at the time of Katrina in a city of 455,000. And, you know, if, if, if the policies that are in place have a bias to them, as they did in New Orleans after Katrina, that's going to hurt the recovery for those of lower income, for those of color. You know, there's suddenly going to be countless people hitting their insurance companies all at once. In New Orleans, right. people complained all the time. I'd send in my, my records and they'd lose it. I'd just send it again. I'd have one agent come out to check things, but then they would be fired. They'd change jobs and have to go through this a second time, a third time. It, it just takes forever. FEMA, I mean, you know, oh my God, dealing with, with FEMA. And, you know, it's not even the people who's in charge so much as the, 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 the rules. You know, it's this, this, this arcane procedures, this endurance test for how do you get reimbursed from the government. There's just a really broken system. And I don't care who the president is or the governor or the head of FEMA. That system has to be uh, fixed because the truth is the pain lies ahead uh, more than uh, right now. You just sort of tackled so much of what I was going to ask you. So let's drill down into, into sort of two particular things. The first is that it seems to me that the rebuilding question for Houston is going to be especially acute because part of the reason why the flooding has been so bad is that Houston was built up, was sprawling without any real concern for the effects of something like major flooding. And so do you – I mean do you think – like what, what what do those conversations look like? What, how, how does a, a region, how does a country begin to think about – rebuilding in places that probably shouldn't have been built built up in the first place? Uh, yeah, that's an easy question to answer because I sat through those uh, in New Orleans for weeks, for months after Katrina. It was you know, a different set, set of circumstances. I, I would not call New Orleans a, a sprawl city like, like Houston, um, but it was the same kind of issue that because of technology, because of pumps, New Orleans really did uh, expand into low-lying, below-sea-level areas. And so the big, there are some neighborhoods that, you know, built on swamp, essentially, and, you know, they're six, eight feet below seawater in a very vulnerable area. It's right on the, the fringe, if you look at a map, of the Gulf of Mexico. And, and there was this big debate 
about shrinking the footprint. Let's make New Orleans a taller, smaller city. Let's do some more infilling. Let's not bring back some of the, the uh, neighborhoods that are in the greatest harm's way. Uh, and you know, you're hearing this from geologists and other experts, but <laughs> people live there. It was their neighborhood. Uh, because of racial geography um, in New Orleans, uh, it meant the high ground uh, was taken by the time banks started loaning money into African-Americans who wanted to buy a home. So guess what? Guess who lived in the lower-lying areas in New Orleans, these, these newer communities? Uh, African-Americans. There was, a, there was a map that this commission came up with, and Bring New Orleans Back Commission is trying to answer the kind of question you just posed. What should we do? Should we let every neighborhood back? Should we shrink the footprint? And they put this map up of like, okay, here's neighborhoods that we're thinking of getting rid of. Well, you would have gotten rid of 80%, literally 80% of the African-Americans in New Orleans would have been uh, told you can't come back. So it's a hard discussion. It's my neighborhood. You're telling me I can't move back into my home. It's America. I own my home. It's property. Then you do the overlay of race. And it just, it just became impossible uh, in New Orleans to shrink the footprint. And they rebuilt all of New Orleans. And what you see is some neighborhoods are only half, two-thirds occupied. And there's a stronger levy system. So the area's safer than it was prior to Katrina, uh, but there are still these low-lying areas that have thousands of people living in them that are, I'd be very scared there if there was a big hurricane about to hit New Orleans. Now, I know you've, you've written um, about, uh, quite specifically, this the, the racial question here, the racial dynamics of New Orleans um, post-Katrina, and you're not an expert in Houston, but just for me as an observer, it seems like we may end up running into kind of a similar... Um, similar discussions, at least, similar problems, because the low-income, predominantly African-American areas of Houston are on lower ground, were the first to be flooded, you know, involve people who may not be able to afford to rebuild or repair. And so in, in New Orleans, could you just, could you talk a little about that? Talk a little about the dispersal, um, about the fact that, you know, historic communities are basically kind of wiped out uh, by the flood and the aftermath. Well, and I want to add one more piece of that, and that's appraised value of land. This is another way that a, a structural racial bias plays a big impact. Let me get specific in New Orleans. Um, this big city park, city park it's called, uh, in New Orleans. And on one side is Lakeview, white, middle-class, professional-class neighborhood, completely covered, eight feet of water after Katrina. On the other side of city park, uh, Gentilly, black, middle-class uh, neighborhood devastated um, after Katrina. Well, your average three-bedroom, two-bathroom house in Lakeview was valued, appraised at $300,000, $350,000. That same house in Gentilly, same neighborhood essentially, just on the other side of the park, was appraised at $175,000, $180,000. Uh, it's a black neighborhood, so supposedly it's not as worth as much, even though it's the same house. And what the state did is came with this program as federal dollars uh, road home, uh, the largest housing recovery program in U.S. history. And they based it not on the cost of rebuilding, which is the reality for most people. It's the reality if your home is covered in water, but based on the appraised value. So you get some money from the insurance company, and road home is going to make you whole up to $150,000. And so the person has a $350,000 house. Let's say got $250,000 in insurance. Road home gives another 100000 They have $350,000 to rebuild. Great. They could do it. Same house in Gentilly. Let's say 100000 
$50,000 in insurance, extra $30,000 from road home. Well, I only have $180,000 roofing material, contractors, plumbers, they all cost the same, whether you're black, white, or green, doesn't make a difference. Um, and so all these people in Gentilly couldn't rebuild because they didn't have enough money because they stupidly, crazily um, based the whole program on assessed value, appraised value, rather than the cost of rebuilding. There was a racial discrimination suit, of course, took forever. Finally, a judge ruled in favor of the black homeowners saying, yes, this system was biased. But by that time, the $10 billion program had a few hundred million dollars in it, and it was largely too late for most. And, and, you know, it was just a cockamamie system that, you know, ensured that uh, it was harder for black residents in New Orleans, in most cases, to rebuild than white residents. So one last question, uh, since we're running out of time here. Um, For those of us um, observing Hurricane Harvey in the aftermath and the rebuilding, what lessons should we take away from the experience of New Orleans? And what should we be watching for um, as time moves on to make sure that we don't repeat the mistakes of uh, New Orleans? Well, it's how are you helping people rebuild? Houston has this huge problem, or the Houston area has a huge problem that uh, the New Orleans area wasn't as uh, acute there. And that's the lack of flood insurance. In New Orleans, if you were in the low-lying areas, you know, many people, most people, especially if they had a mortgage, the bank required it, um, had flood insurance. Well, most people in, in the Houston area don't have flood insurance. I don't know enough about it, but I guess it was not required because uh, of flood maps and all that kind of thing. And so, whereas there's the national flood insurance, a federal program, you know, helping out uh, in in uh, New Orleans and the surrounding area, uh, that came up to like twenty billion dollars or something that national flood insurance paid. That's not going to be there in um, Houston. And so the question is, where is that money going to come from? People need help. I mean, this was a disaster. Their homes have been destroyed. Insurance will cover some, but not all. Can't just write off Houston, fourth largest city in our country. And I just, I just don't know how it's going to play out. I, you know, one advantage that New Orleans had uh, after Katrina is George Bush was hit so hard. The coverage was so terrible that even though he was a conservative Republican, around, especially around spending, um, he pushed very hard on New Orleans' behalf, uh, you know, Southern Louisiana's half to bring it, behalf to bring in money. Um, and he fought his own party uh, to make sure that Road Home and other programs like that were funded. Today, I, 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 don't, I don't know. You know, money is so tight, you know, shrinking the government, shrinking uh, business, sh- shrinking uh, taxes. You know, I mean, the same week we're talking about Houston's future, we have the president in Missouri saying we're going to slash corporate taxes by, he hopes, more than 50% and slash personal taxes. And, you know, it's like, okay, so there's going to be less money. I, I don't know where the help is going to come from uh, for Houston because it's largely not going to be the flood protection, uh, flood insurance uh, program. We have been speaking with Gary Rivlin author of Katrina After the Flood. Thank you, Gary, for joining us on Trumpcast. It was a very interesting conversation. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's the show for today. If you don't already know, we'll be live from Austin's Texas Union Theater on Saturday, September 23rd at 7.30 p.m. Jacob Weisberg, Virginia Heffernan, and myself 
We'll be joined by former New York Times executive editor Joe Abramson and Congressman Joaquin Castro. For more information and tickets to the show, go to slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live. Today's show was produced by Jason DeLeon with help from Afim Shapiro and AC Valdez. I'm Jamel Bowie. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.